0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 41 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that. Matters. I'm Rod Morrie, and today it's our great pleasure and a privilege, I must say, to be spending some time with a man who's been covering this great game for more than 30 years. Bill Fields is a senior writer at Golf World Magazine, and he's been published in various other places as well. We'll be chatting to him in just a tick about his new book, Arnie, Sevy and a Fleck of Golf History. But before I introduce Bill, let me ring in my partners in crime here at State of the Game from the US. He's an author himself, but so much more as well. Blogger, commentator, critic, course architect, golf channel regular, Jeff Shackleford, going to be fascinating to chat to Bill today, especially since he's just come back from the U.S. Opens at Pinehurst.
1: Yes, yeah, Bill is uh, Bill is a, a phenomenal writer, and uh, we won't talk about it today because there's no point. But uh, he's a great, he's an amazing editor. Also, uh, he uh, is our features editor, and he uh, more than any editor I've ever worked with on an article always makes it better. Always finds something. Uh, that just uh, remembers something about uh, golf history or whatever it is and just uh – so it's it's and that is a craft unto itself, as you know.
0: Absolutely, And that's a brilliant suck up, which I wasn't expecting. So well done to you, Shack. <laughs> hold you in
1: good stead. Okay, it was a little of that no, in
0: the, it was in the really future, sincere. but no doubt well deserved. From here in Australia, the Clayton portion of Ogilvy Clayton Cocking and Mead Course Design former touring professional, a magazine columnist in his own right, Mike Clayton. Clayton, you're an avid reader. I'm not. I'm guessing you've probably consumed millions of Bill Field's words over the years. It's going to be great to chat with him today.
2: Yeah, will be terrific. Looking forward to it. Yeah, indeed. Very good.
0: And now to the man himself. As mentioned, he has a new book on the market, but to be honest, that's just one excuse to have him on the show. He's a four-time winner of the Golf Riders Association of America Annual Writing Contest, and he's one of the best-known names in American and indeed, world golf journalism. Bill, thanks for taking some time. Looking forward to getting your insights on the state of the modern game of golf.
3: All uh, right. Thanks for having me on. And uh, Jeff and uh, Mike, a uh, pleasure to be talking with you fellows.
0: Absolutely. Now, Shaq, have we still got you? I just got a message saying, uh uh-oh, have we lost your sound? No, we've lost Jeff completely. Stand by while I get him back on the line. While I'm doing that, Bill, uh, I like to start with authors in particular. I'm always intrigued as to how people sort of come across uh, the ideas to write books. This one of yours is a pretty simple one. Just get a bunch of your already published stuff and (laughs) republish it. Brilliant idea.
3: Uh, yeah, that, that's right. I, it, it 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 wasn't a, a full book, uh, start to finish. It's a collection of stories that I've done over a twenty year period for uh, roughly twenty year period for Golf World, and uh, you know, it kind of in, in its whole, I think it it paints a little tapestry of, of uh, really about a century of golf, all the way from you know from Willie Anderson and uh, Harry Varden up to up to up to Seve. So uh, it's it's a pretty good mix of uh, subjects uh, across the century, basically.
0: And, Bill, I'm always fascinated by people who come to golf writing. What, how did it unfold for you? Was it golf first, writing first, or did the two develop together? You are brilliant at it. You've obviously found uh, the best place to be professionally, but how did you come to writing about the game?
3: Hello. Well, I, I grew up in uh, Southern Pines, North Carolina. I was born in Pinehurst at the hospital there, and, and uh, it was a great place to grow up. But my, uh, my family was not a golf family at all, um, in fact, I introduced my father to the game, and, and he had a great deal of fun playing the last decade or so of his life. Uh, we had we had a blast, and I was so happy I was able to to turn him onto the game in a bit of a reversal from the way it usually goes. But um, you know, we he was a daily newspaper reader. We got the it was the Greensboro Daily News that we got delivered to our house, and uh, you know, from the time I was four, five, six years old, he would I sort of had the sports section under my nose. I was a big atlantic coast conference basketball uh, fan as everyone in in our state was and uh you know I, the love of sports the love of newspapers and uh and, and the love of golf and i was just uh, sort of combined all of that and uh was a general sports writer for a few years and then had the opportunity to join golf world in 1984 and and it was just really uh, it was really fortunate and i've been, been very lucky over the last few decades
0: Having just had Rand Morissette and Chris Bewey on the show the last couple of episodes, I would find it surprising that you could grow up in Pinehurst and not be a golf family. Quite sincerely, was that somewhat unusual at the time?
3: Uh, uh, no, probably not. Um, you know, my, my family—my mother was a bank teller, my dad did a number of different things. Uh, you, you know, he was—we uh, were decidedly, you know, middle class. We weren't upper middle class, and uh, you know, uh, there were people uh, as far as uh, you know good junior golfers and what have you, um, it's changed a little bit. Uh, there's a couple of fine players, including a, a son of a good friend of mine who's, who's a young professional right now. He's quite a good player. But back in the 60s and 70s, it, it wasn't widespread uh, popularity among uh, kids growing up there. Uh, we were kind of golf nerds when we were playing uh, high school golf in, in the Piner, Southern Pines area. Um, you know maybe a little surprising but uh, it's sort of the way it was
0: because mm, uh, the history of the place was talking to Chris Bewey the last time was just amazing how Pinehurst was kind of born I would never realized that whole part of it and how golf was Yeah, uh, Chris, uh,
3: yeah Chris has that's a cool book that he did about uh, the early days And uh, uh, he uh, he was actually he sent me a picture recently he was at the, the World Golf Hall of Fame opening as a, as a little kid I was a, a high school sophomore when it opened and almost 40 years ago, and we were, we were there in the crowd. As you know, the, the original inductees and President Ford was there. It was quite a big day.
0: Yeah, wow. Fantastic memories to draw back on. Bill, you mentioned there the, the newspaper coming to the house every day and you'd sit and read and put your nose in the sports pages and whatnot. Something that we're kind of losing. You know, we, Jeff and I have just been talking and we talk regularly on the show about what's going to happen with media in general and, of course, our own golf media, which is its own sort of beast. We don't see so much of that anymore. I mean, I'm, how do your kids get their news? We don't get the daily newspaper anymore. Where are the future reporters and writers going to come from?
3: Yeah, as uh, Jeff knows better than anybody, and we all do, uh, the landscape's changed a lot. I mean, as someone said, uh, the, internet, the internet's been great for almost everybody in the world except, you know, print publications and uh, people have small retail stores. Uh, it's, it's put a pinch on those two segments, but you know, there'll always be people reporting on golf. It's just going to come in different different ways. Jeff's made, a, obviously, a great impact, you know, on the web uh, with his golf blog, and um, things have changed, and, it, you know, it's never going to be the way it was. And, you know, a lot of people that wrote regularly about golf for newspapers, of course, those uh, positions are, are no longer there. It's down to just a few national publications that cover any significant golf at all, uh, whereas sized cities and newspapers – or there was Toledo or, you know, Des Moines or St. Louis, all those type of cities, they had somebody that was covering golf and they would at least go to, uh, you know, the Masters and, and, and some of the other regular tournaments, uh, but uh, much different now.
0: Mm. In some ways, Bill, are we almost going to go back? I remember being on holidays many years ago down at Rosebud. Clayton, a former girlfriend of mine, her family, had a house down there at Rosebud. It was a fantastic place to go and stay for a week. or so. And I found an old book on the bookshelf, one of those wonderful experiences, which was just a series of... I'm fairly certain there was Sports Illustrated um, coverage of majors from sort of the 30s and 40s and 50s, really long-form essays about the tournaments built. Perhaps are we going to go back to something more like that, do you think? Is the world almost going to do a loop where you'll be able to find that sort of thing? Because at the moment, as you say, I mean, virtually Doug Ferguson is going to be the world's golf writer soon, isn't he, as far as daily coverage goes? Yeah,
3: Doug's very widely read, and you know he's a he's a fine reporter and does a fantastic job but it's uh it is a shame that really he's the only one that's covering uh, not the only one but certainly there aren't many that, who are covering uh that much golf these days and uh you know i think that that is a shame and a variety of viewpoints is always good and uh i do think people uh, certainly a segment of population does still like to read and they like to read substantive articles and uh i've never you know i've never heard anyone say a, a, an article in golf world was was too long uh Despite what you know, some people might perceive. Uh, I think people who really enjoy the game, um, they uh, they like to get immersed in it, and that includes reading about the history of the game and, and everything. Mm. I think there's a little misperception that um, you know, uh, young people are only interested in Tiger or you know, foot golf or whatever it might be. I don't mm. I don't think that's the case. Did you
0: have to mention foot golf? I've done my best to avoid it for the last six months, and um, was doing. Well, yes, that whole idea of the 10-second soundbite being the only way to communicate, it does seem a bit wishy-washy, doesn't it? I think there's probably people who are of more substance than that. People haven't changed that much. Bill, back to the book, and obviously over the years you've collected these really quite – I managed to read two of. I haven't read the whole book. But I managed to read two of, the, two of the, uh, the first stories in there. What was it like going back over all your old work, and how do you select which ones you're going to include in a book like this?
3: Well, it was uh, maybe harder than I thought it might be because, um, you know, I've been lucky enough to write about, you know, dozens of, you know, historically significant subjects over the years. And uh, I guess what I ended up wanting to do was sort of have a mix of household names that people knew that I'd written about and also some characters that weren't necessarily widely known but had compelling stories. And I think that makes it a little different from some golf anthologies that have come out, whether, you know, in years past about, you um, you know, from Herb Wind or whomever. But I know uh, one anthology of Charles Price's uh, that that I love. That you know, he had a couple stories about uh, uh, people that were tour administrators or what have you—a little slice of life. And I tried to do that. I've got stories about Joe Dye and Dean Beeman in here. Um, you know, to try to try to get a little flavor of some people that weren't. Uh, you know, of course, Beeman was a very fine competitive golfer, but who made their mark in other ways. Um, but uh, it's a mix, and it's not just household names. Uh, It includes some people who, you know, played and and won a little bit. And uh, I just tried to have a a bit of a broad canvas on who I ended up with. But it was hard, though, to Mm -hmm. narrow it down.
0: Well, you've been so prolific over the years, I imagine. It would have been. Clates, you're an avid reader. You read probably more than anybody I know. Sometimes the stories about the lesser-known people are by far the most compelling, aren't they? Because you're not already familiar with them. And the sort of stories Bill's talking about about the lesser-known people are the ones that really get you in. And when you finish them, you think, oh, I wish there was more.
2: Yeah, they're often the. I mean, people say there are no characters in the game, but they don't look. They don't scratch much below the surface. The real characters were guys like Simon Hobday and Tony Johnson and guys who weren't the most famous players, but who were hysterically funny and loved the game. And give us a Hobday story.
0: It's a, you've opened the door there. You've got to give us a Hobday story.
2: Oh, a Hobday story. <laughs> Boy, oh, Well, wow. I mean, when he was sitting in the clubhouse in Switzerland and the guy asked him to put some clothes back on, so he put his underpants on his head. <laughs> That's so, I mean, just I'm legendary. A, Hobday used to. Why there were so many Hobday stories. He used, to, you know, he used to throw all the clothes in the bath on Monday morning and swirl them around with his putter, and <laughs> that was how he cleaned his clothes. And, <laughs> but, I mean, you know, such a great player. I mean, you know, the, the, the room, well, not the room, but Ledbetter kind of really admired his swing, I think, and based a lot of what he started teaching years ago on what Hobday did. He was such a beautiful ball striker, a terrible putter, but such a beautiful ball striker. But yeah, the classic Hobbit was when he had, that, had the broad-brimmed hat and he had David Frost's name on top of the hat. Why? He started, out, he started out putting and he three-putted about the fourth hole and he threw the hat on the ground and looked up to the heavens and said, I knew it wouldn't take you long to figure out I wasn't David Frost under here. <laughs>
0: Oh, wonderful stuff. And so much of that, of course, unless you know people who've played the tour, I, I think I've heard a couple of those stories before from Bruce Young, who caddied on the European tour back then, Clays. But they are the, the really great stuff about sort of, I imagine, playing professional golf, particularly at an era when the money wasn't quite like it is today. How do you uncover the characters, Bill, some of the lesser-known people? Is it just from stumbling around in the world of golf and you sort of come across these people and you know, these people should be written about? How have you sort of selected people to do some of your sort of profile yeah. over
3: the years. You know, uh, one of the stories, early stories in my book is about, um, you know, Willie Anderson, who's, uh, you know, one of the several four-time U.S. Open winners and uh, from the turn of the 20th century, and, you know, there'd been stuff written about him, and, you know, it's sort of always was shorthand. He was a immigrant Scot who came over and, you know, drank himself to death and died at 31, and, you know, that's about all you heard. Well, I just decided to try to, you know, look in to see what I really could find out about Willie Anderson, and you know, and uh, searched some records in the Philadelphia library and, uh, you know, did all that I could and sort of found that, hey, he might not have drunk himself to death after all. He he died, uh, according to the death certificate that I saw, he died of uh, what was called uh, epilepsy or an epileptic seizure. So, um, you know, I think I tried to flesh out, you know, who he was and how he came to America. I found his record of the passenger ship that he traveled on and, uh, you know, and just getting here. And I think that's one thing that comes through with some of my stories about the characters who played in the early part of the 20th century was that, you know, not only was golf harder, arguably, because of the equipment, but life was hard. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, fully a third of the passengers, uh, around 100 passengers who, who were on uh, Anderson's ship, uh, they didn't make it. They got one illness or another and, and didn't even survive the passage. So um, I think uh, that's one thing to keep in mind when – you know, I'll never take anything away from today's players and how well they can play the game, but nor should anyone take anything away from the players who played a long time ago who may have shot higher scores because it was an entirely different not only game but world, and it was a hard world.
0: That, that statistic, and that's one of the stories that I read, was the Willie Anderson, which was a fabulous piece, by the yeah. way, and uh-huh. I didn't know that, and I should know that, <laughs> being in golf, that I'd always just heard the the same story, that you know he basically died... From alcoholism, but that was a staggering figure—the number of people that died on the boat on the way. And I never knew that. And you're right—you we we do get sort of taken with today's players and this hero worship that we sort of have for them. But they really don't—they don't do it tough, do they, Bill?
3: Well, it's it's uh, it's just it's just a lot different, and it's not as tough. Uh, you know, certainly uh, Mike has played at the highest level and and uh, knows uh, that you know how hard the game is. But just the logistics and the travel and everything of today versus you know 40 years ago versus 60 versus so much farther back than that just a whole different um thing and and it was much harder in yesteryear and you know those players uh i remember when byron nelson died uh some years back i was at a, a local club here in connecticut playing and, and i heard the you know the the the, the host professional sort of say well you know he was pretty good but he didn't have to beat anybody i mean it's just a just a mindless comment i mean you know, you could be playing against three people and not win eleven tournaments in a row, in eighteen in
0: the season. It's interesting you say that people who sort of don't um, respect the sort of achievements of the past. I mean, I've never backed up on the Wednesday comp at Mangrove Mountain. Clates, do you? You obviously played twenty or so, thirty odd years ago uh, on the tour. You hear those sorts of things, I imagine, all the time. What sort of response do you have to what Bill sort of told me there? People who just don't appreciate uh, the talent and caliber of players from the past.
2: Well, I mean, Peter Ellis always said, you know, the best players were the blokes who played with the Hickory Shafts. I mean, the talent of Varden and those guys. I mean, obviously, we never saw them play, but how you know, the game was so difficult to play then. I mean, now it's, you know, there's this throwaway line that, you know, of course, the players are so much better now. You hear that all the time. And wow, when they're better. I mean, look how much easier the game is to play and, and how much... Better they look because the clubs are so much easier to hit. Mm. So you know, so so it's you know, has anyone ever played golf better than Ben Hogan? When was the last time someone hit fifty-two greens in a row at the U.S. Open? I mean, we keep going back to that. But wow, Hogan and Snead and those guys. I mean, Nelson. I mean, Bill, you've been around the game for a long time. What are some
0: of the changes you've seen? And we like to bang on on this show about the damage that modern equipment has done to the game in a lot of ways. What's your take on sort of the state of the game and modern equipment and where it's going? The game seems to be shrinking, but we seem to keep pushing, or the manufacturers seem to keep pushing this idea that hitting it longer is the only way to make the game more popular, bigger holes. What's your take on all that sort of stuff? You mentioned foot golf. Now you're going to have to speak about it.
3: (laughs) Well, I think Jeff Jeff knows sort of where I stand, I think. Uh, But, uh, you know, I was just... uh, I just researched. He's one of us, Rod. One of That's us. That, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. I was, I was researching a little thing I did on Harry Varden, uh, this week for the magazine. And, you know, Varden was a guy who, you know, won three of his open championships with a gutty and three with a rubber core ball. But, you know, he really thought that the game had gone to heck when, uh, when, you know, the gutty was, was driven out of the game. He thought that that was a better test of, uh, of skill. And, uh, you know, he was the finest player of his era. I, I think if if the people that advocate for for the current equipment and, you know, long is best and all that, if they could show me that during this period of, of golf contracting as a participants, participant sport, if they could show me that, you know, that that wasn't the case, that during this period of the new equipment that participation had actually grown, I think they would have a lot of, uh, bigger limb to stand out on in terms of advocating that that makes the game great. Uh, but I don't think that information is there. In fact, it's it's the opposite. And there are a lot of factors that go into why golf is having a hard time uh, attracting you know more players, and uh, some of it has nothing to do with equipment. In fact, most of it has nothing to do with equipment. But I think to uh, the fact that the, uh, the confluence of hotter equipment, if you will, and, and less participation, I don't think that can be um, you know uh, overlooked either um i think the game the game was uh, 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 uh sort of, sort of the same way for decades if you if you if you look at the advent of the steel shaft in the, in the early 30s and the wound uh, ball that was played by you know elite players up up until the late 90s the game was uh, largely the same and it was a pretty good game and uh then things uh changed a bit
0: mm. A couple of things happened, didn't they, Bill? And as you say, there's been more. The tiger effect was one thing, in part because what happened, I think, to golf, a lot of people from outside of golf, and particularly real estate developers, started to see it as this cash, cash. I and mean, We get this oversupply of golf courses built, well, with housing estates built around them. And The impact of that has contributed, I'm sure, as well. And the model of how people consume golf has now changed. So club membership is not as attractive as it once was. It's almost been a perfect storm of things working against golf, hasn't it?
3: Um, you're right. And I think, you know, the real estate type course certainly was hitting its stride even before Tiger, uh, came onto mm-hmm. the pro tour in the eighties, uh, that we saw an explosion in the, into the nineties of <clears throat> that type course. And, you know, that probably turned out to be the exact wrong kind of course, the model to go to if you really want to make golf more of an accessible thing, um, mm-hmm. because it needs to be, you know, cheaper and, uh, faster perhaps. And, uh, uh, those, those real estate-type developments aren't uh, necessarily the way to make that happen.
0: Hmm. And, of course, it's, it is the model that seems to be going China with you know, the great potential saviour of golf. It's exactly the road they're going down. Uh, yeah. Off that topic for just, uh, just a moment, Shaq, are there some legitimate questions for those who, who don't agree with us? Um, I noticed uh, what sparked my thought on this. We saw the two U.S. opens at Pioneers, which we'll talk about shortly, Bill, and then last week we saw Congressional. You couldn't have got two more different particularly looking golf courses. It was extraordinary. The US Open they should have had in 2011 happened, it seems, last week at Congressional. And you were sort of critical of the course set up. And a lot of commenters on your blog, Jeff, we very disagree with saying, you know, that this this notion of brown being good it doesn't work. People don't like it. Um, you know, the game should have rough. There should be tournaments where straight hitting is really what it's about, and, and those sorts of things. Talk a little bit about that, and, and, and have those people got a legitimate point? I mean, I was drawn to some of the some of the notions that people were putting in those comments that there's room for all types of golf, and is not narrow fairways, thick rough, one type of golf that we should allow for sometimes.
1: Yeah, well, I, I, we knew there was going to be criticism of Pinehurst and the, and the look, and there would be people who didn't like it. And I think we were just mostly shocked that there wasn't more. Um, visually, you know, I thought the second week at Pinehurst, the course didn't look as good as, as it did the first week because they'd had some rain and they watered. And so you had more of that look of uh, areas of green uh, contrasting with areas that looked dead, whereas the first week it was all pretty bad. Pretty brownish, and it all um, it, the, it, your eye just didn't really go to these these lush green spots, and it looked more uh, like a cultivated look. And so that that's just a small thing, but uh, I, I just watch, and of course I watched this most of the second week uh, on television, so I also saw more. But I, I did see a fair amount of the television coverage the first week, and I thought that was an interesting difference. Um, but yeah, as for the the notion of high rough and hitting it straight and. Yeah, you know, it's it's the same old problem. I just feel like a tournament on a golf course like Congressional that set up that way is going to end differently. Um, you you play another four holes, it's going to end differently. If you end, you play four holes less, you, it's just who who is the last person not to mm-hmm. crash, and it just happens to be that Justin Rose is the one that gets to a playoff and then makes it a, a pod and great, and that kind of validates it because he's a major champion, but. Um, you know, Pinehurst, you felt like the it identified the best player, and there was a buildup, and and that player uh, certainly in Keimer's case really separated himself. And and Michelle, we really did play great. She had kind of a strange break on sixteen, and it it got ugly there for a second, and then gosh, she you know recovered so unbelievably. And but you felt like she was the best player, and you can't always have that. Clates knows this; it, it's not always going to work out. But it just seems like with those kinds of setups that everybody thinks is rewarding the great strategic ball striker actually really brings chance into the equation more than something like Pinehurst does. And trying to convince people otherwise when they've grown up a, a certain way is is very tough. Clates, so you've played both
0: types of golf, for want of a better term, you know, wide and sort of strategic in yeah. angles and narrow and high rough and penal if you don't hit it straight. Explain the difference from a playing perspective, why... Well, I think we can safely say you favour wide and strategic angles over narrow and, and high rough. Why?
2: Well, because the, to me it goes back to the old course at St Andrews where every single shot there you have to work out for yourself how you're going to play it. The, the only shot you really have to where, where it's dictated is the first hole probably where you have to pitch the ball over the burn unless you do what I did in my first opening you duff it and land short and bounce over. But, <laughs> genius, um, Clayton, genius. <laughs> but every single shot there, You've, you have to work out for yourself where you're going to hit it and what club you're going to play and where you're going to land it and where it's going to finish up. Whereas the, the alternative is to just hit it where you're told. So at Congressional, you just hit it where you're told. So, so it's a pure test of execution. And lots of people think that's the way golf should be, just test the execution. Whereas the other way is clearly a test of execution and a test of thought. Mm. But, but the, the sickest thing I saw at Congressional was on Saturday Brendan de Jong hit it over the 15th green. And at Pinehurst, when everyone missed a green, you, you essentially played off the short grass, no matter where your ball ran to. It, ran, it either finished on the short grass or it ran way further and finished up in the sand. So you hit it down the bank at the back of the 15th green. It ran all the way down this beautifully closely mown short grass and finished in a yard-wide bank of thick rough at the bottom of the hill. I mean, there was no way the ball could ever finish on the short grass. It was so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't make greenkeepers see the incongruity in that. The, the, Except
1: on eighteen, where they they cut the lake bank down.
2: Oh yeah, because it goes in the water. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> so so they use short grass where it suits them to run the ball away back into long grass or into a lake, yeah. or they just have long grass to foot off the green and you're just hiking out of that junk all the time. I mean, it's just you know it's just an American disease that fortunately no no one's ever really caught it in Britain and Australia, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, no doubt they'll catch it in places where they think America's is the, the god of golf.
0: Well, the problem, of course, Bill, isn't it that the world watches American golf? It's the most watched professional golf. This is what we see all the time. What's your take on the sort of congressional v Pinehurst to boil it down, very simply, in those two different styles of golf, Bill?
3: Well, I think um, you know that style of golf was was propagated by the U.S. Open starting in you know probably the fifties here because you know it was said that it wasn't uh, at that point. Uh, uh, set up to, to identify the best golfer. It was set up to identify Ben Hogan, and yeah. you know, in some ways, in some ways, that's true because he was the epitome of uh, an open golfer, in, a U.S. Open golfer in those years, and uh, his game was fairways and greens, and that's that became the model for decades. And I'm not saying there's not a place, some place for you know, some U.S. Opens to play more that way than. Than uh, uh, than not, but certainly, uh, I love Pinehurst. I think uh, what Cor and Crenshaw did was terrific, and it was terrific that we could have a U.S. Open on that type of course, a more strategic course than uh, than as usual. I thought it was outstanding. I, you know, I'm I'm a little biased because I grew up around there, but um, just from my Golf Observer hat, I uh, I thought it was I thought it was great, and I thought the shot Keimer hit out of the uh, fifth. Uh, the stuff on the fifth hole on Saturday that, that really was a shot yeah. of the tournament, you know, he could not have hit that shot out of a three inch meter rough.
0: Which Paul, Paul Asinger and Curtis Strange sounded quite disappointed about several times in the, <laughs> the early commentary yeah. that you couldn't, you <laughs> couldn't hit that, that shot in 05 is what I kept hearing. Or, no, you couldn't hit that shot in 99 as though that was somehow a bad thing. Clates, what happens when you take people who feel that that is what golf should be and they go and play, for example, the old course, or a course more in that style, or a pinehurst, you take them to actually experience and play. I must say, growing up in Sydney, we have, as you know, much more tree-lined as far as golf courses. All courses are tree-lined because it's the only way to protect one fairway from the next. That's how the, the, the land seems to have, have fallen. The first time I saw a Lynx golf course when I went overseas, it was like, this isn't golf. This doesn't even look like golf. Of course, by the turn of the first time, it's like, wow, this is golf and this is what it should be. What happens when you take people who think that golf is tree-lined and rough and... And a game of kicking through the goalposts, and take them to a course that is strategic and wide, in your experience.
2: Well, if they go to Royal Melbourne, some of them think it's too easy. So, Mike Harwood, who was a tremendous player, finished second in the Open to Baker Finch and, You know, one of the three biggest tournaments in Europe at the height of his career, he just thinks Royal Melbourne's a stupid course because it's just so wide. But Hards was a short, straight hitter, so you know he said Royal Melbourne would be great if they just grew the rough and made it narrow. You have to really drive the ball properly, but. You know, he could have done the
0: setup for the World Cup
2: quite. Right? So you've
0: had a few agreeers in at the US too, didn't he?
2: It it's so utterly misses the point that hard if you're on the wrong side of the fairway you can't get anywhere near the flag. Mm. But you know, people go to St Andrews and like Scott Hoke and Lee Westwood and who's surprisingly English, but you, you know, they think it's the greatest mess in the world because it doesn't conform to what they think ought to you know, doesn't reward the skills they have. Mm. Well, that, that that's a superficial view of it, of course, you know, if they, because they don't understand, to, I, I guess, that it goes back to the same point. There's a difference between straight hitting and accurate hitting, whereas at St. Andrews in Royal Melbourne, you have to drive accurately to a particular point. At Congressional, for example, the, the, the typical US Open course, you just have to hit straight. And, of course, they're still trying to find Ben Hogan, but there not been a Hogan since Hogan, no. apart from Nicholas, probably. But no one plays like Hogan, so... They, they keep trying to find this player that died 20 years ago. You, you know, it's just who plays like Ben Hogan now. Mm.
0: Bill, all the people that you that feature in the book and all the stories and the profiles and the people that feature in the book, what, what what's your sense of um, perhaps golfers past, I suppose, on their thoughts on where the game has gone and is going? What, do you get any sense of these issues that we talk about always on this, this show about the ball going too far and all those sorts of things? Do you get any sense from them about sort of generally speaking, anything sort of... Uniform amongst them, or are they like us full of all different opinions about the direction the game's taken
3: you know I think there's there's probably a, a little bit of a, of the case that you know people people like what they had when they were in their prime. Mm-hmm. I think uh, that's just a personal bias that that everybody has to to some degree but I think you know when you have somebody like Nicholas or uh, you know really players that you know not only were really good uh, great players but thought seriously about the game that you know i think when they say something about the ball or about technology you know um sure everybody's got their biases but um i think you got to take what they say with with some uh you know uh take it take it for what it is and take it and, and, and understand that they're not just speaking out of left field they uh they've been there and they've they've looked at this stuff and i think uh likewise those of us that have of observed the game and studied the game and tried to study the history of it to some degree i think you know i think we uh, what we say about the equipment is is not uh just totally uh random i think we're saying it for a reason and um you know like i said varden thought the game had had uh, deteriorated when they stopped using the gutter to perch a ball and you know you could say okay that was maybe an extreme viewpoint at the time but um that was what he knew and uh but i think even with the advent of the steel shaft and uh even uh, smaller metal headed drivers and uh the wound ball uh, uh, as it evolved uh, for for six or seven decades uh it was still the game that was recognizable in 1998 let's say that was there in 1932 mm. and uh i think there there's a lot to to the good uh, that that was the case
0: mm. Speaking of that, you mentioned, Nicholas, who in your experience who you've encountered over the years amongst the players are the real, the genuine thinkers of the game? Because golf is such a selfish pursuit. It almost demands that you see the game entirely through the prism of your own skill set, doesn't it? But who, who have been in your experience? I mean, I immediately think of Crenshaw being a broad thinker about the game. Nicholas, I think, is one as well. Who else have you sort of encountered who's who's got that broad take on golf, not just how it affects the way they play?
3: Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, uh, I've got a story on Sam's need in the book from, from encountering Hello. him and spending time, some time with him and uh, when he was 84 years old. And, you know, Sam was uh, sort of a reputation as a, a country guy, but he was very smart about the game, and he, he understood it as well as, as any great player that's, that's ever played.
0: Just a sec. Clayton, are you still with us? Yeah, I'm back, yeah. Okay. I was- All right. I, I just had a message that Skype's telling me you need to update your Skype. Telling me that you need. Yeah, to update I got the your same Skype. thing. How about know, how about that for technology, Bill Fields? My computer's telling me that Mike Clayton needs to update his. <laughs> hey, haven't we <laughs> we come a long way? So after today's show, Clayton's your first job. Your homework is to uh, is to update your Skype, Bill. We've touched on the U.S. Uh, uh... Opens at uh, at Pinehurst. Uh, you were there for both weeks. Just give us a sense of what you expected beforehand, and then perhaps how that differed to what actually unfolded.
3: Um. I was I was pleased with what unfolded. I'd been a little alarmed. Uh, I was in Pinehurst around the first of May, and some of the vegetation in the in the in the roughs uh, was quite thick. Uh, I think thicker than I had thought it would be. Uh, and uh, they had they had a drought really from that point until the opens were played. And I think that was to the good. I think it might have been uh, more of some chop out situations if uh, the weather had been wet uh, for the rest of May. And I don't think that would have been good. Uh, uh, I'm glad that didn't happen. Uh, I'm glad the thunderstorms that were dancing all around the radar in North Carolina and South Carolina for uh, n- uh, part of those eight days uh, it really never hit until uh, the evening, and uh, they got very lucky with the weather. You know, the U.S. Open did not stretch into the U.S. Women's Open week. They had some good breaks, but uh, I think they deserve some good breaks because I think uh, it was a uh, it was a good, uh, you know, perhaps even noble idea from David Faye to. To try to pull this off, and it was pulled off. And you know, as a as someone who you know grew up in that area, it was uh, it was great to see. Hmm.
0: It, it was a, a high risk venture, wasn't it? As you say, and it didn't really dawn on, I think me until a week or two out. If it does go to a playoff, yes, you got all sorts of problems then with women. There was a lot of criticism, Bill, about the women turning up on the Sunday of the men's U.S. Open and practicing their putting on the same putting ground. It All seemed a bit precious to me. A lot of people seemed completely offended by the fact that. Martin Keimer should have to share the putting green on Sunday afternoon with Paul Lacroix. What was your take on that? And what was the vibe on the ground about some of that sort of stuff?
3: Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't see what the the problem problem was. I mean, uh, you know, it was a unique situation with the women coming up. Uh, I think they had told the women all along that at a certain point on Sunday they could have access to the the full practice range and everything. Um, you know, some of the women they showed up and you know, did they show up first to be on camera? Uh, who knows? Uh, but it, who was, cares? it was harmless. I think. <laughs> <laughs> it was harmless, I think. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of the players inside the ropes watching, you could say, was that was that totally okay? Uh, I guess it was fine. Um, you know, interesting that, that Michelle Wee got, you know, she made a point of saying she'd gotten the yardage books of uh, Keegan Bradley and Ricky Fowler and their caddies. And, uh, you know, who knows if that helped, but... Coincidentally, she ended up winning the uh, Women's
0: Open. A hell of a lot of reading before every shot—that's for sure. <laughs> Four yardage books to consult. Yours, your caddies, and two other players. Mike,
3: did you uh, did you uh, did you do all that when you were playing multiple yardage
2: books? <laughs> yeah, you know, get to the third hole and say, "Ricky Fowler had 148 in the first day of eight iron. Oh, we've got 148. What should we do? You know, like <laughs> have it all there."
0: How how was the yardage book situation, Clade's you? Because I mean, the yardage book really kind of was a fairly late invention. It was really Nicholas that really started all of that. Wasn't it? Was it were there still players? I know Kel Nagel clait's told me that he never used a yardage book in his life.
2: He eyeballed every shot he ever hit. Yeah, well, Peter Thompson too, but I mean Nick and Sally. yeah, he wrote the things on a card, a scorecard, which is what we all did as kids. But I mean in Europe an Australian kid called Graham Heinrich was the first one who started doing proper yardage books. He was he did the definitive St Andrews Yardage Book, it's a brilliant book. So it wasn't until the eighties that one of the caddies went out and started doing you know, really good yardage books. They run around with
0: measuring wheels and all sorts of stuff, didn't so, they,
2: back in the yeah. day? And... In, in fact, there was one hole we played in Spain only. It was across a quarry, and there was no way you could measure it. There was no lasers, obviously. He drilled a hole in a top flight, put some fishing line through it, <laughs> hit this thing across the water onto the green, and then went and measured with his wheel the length of the fishing line that had gone out. That was the only way you could measure the hole. Amazing. Uh, okay. Wow.
0: Oh as the player, if you'd missed that green, you'd have felt pretty bad, wouldn't you? After all the effort the caddy had got to
2: well, it, it, it was an eight-on across the crowd to a football field, it wasn't too difficult. <laughs> but
0: anyway. uh, dear, oh dear, oh dear, sorry. You
2: know,
3: uh, uh, Rod, uh, this guy Gene, you know, Gene Andrews is sort of credited mm. as being the father of the yardage book over here that Nicholas learned from him but Jack Fleck, who I have a story about in my book, he claims that he was really uh, pacing mm. off yardages, you know, in the in the early 50s, and he sort of claims that he was the guy, um, but uh, certainly at a certain point, uh, you know, certainly uh, caught on. Sneed Sneed did, did uh, apparently played uh, played better and kind of lamented that there wasn't uh, playing by yards, uh, you know, in his prime because he, he he was he was better, I think, in his later years when he was playing by
0: yards. Hmm. Clayton, so you've just sounded a little bit muffled that last time. Have you done something different to your microphone? If you have, fix it because I wanted to ask you another question. Um, okay, let me let me. Oop, you went fuzzy. Now you're plugging in and out. Now you're
2: plugging in and out. I took them out. Is that better or worse?
0: That's worse because now I can hear That's myself worse. back. Now I can hear myself back. Okay. <laughs> I have to right. plug them, plug back, them in. back in. All right. And we'll put up with uh, uh, with fuzzy. Uh, I imagine you play most of your golf without yardage book these days, Clay. It's better or worse.
2: Um, well, I get so used to playing with yardages, it's you know, it's hard not to think about that, but. I know always hit the ball. I mean, the, the great thing, well, I, I restained my, I found that McGregor forward if you, for $13 on the internet. Well, if a friend of mine found it. I had it restained and I use that now. It's just such a beautiful club. By well, a 958 and McGregor forward, it's such a great club. From 210 yards, it's perfect. Fantastic. So everyone talks about these rescue clubs and stuff. I mean, go and get a McGregor, forward, a big, heavy steel shaft. That's beautiful to use.
0: The, the sense of achievement, I suppose what we're talking about here, Bill, is a bit of romance, aren't we? Golf seems to have lost a lot of mo- romance. We're now in a mass manufacture. There's nothing romantic about a modern driver, is there? There is something very romantic about Clayton's Persimmon 4-wood. What's that done to yeah, the Yeah, I mean,
3: I, you know, he's talking about the You know, That was my first set of really good uh, woods in the 70s was uh, I had aluminum inserted uh, McGregor uh, Persimmon Woods. Uh, very similar to Jerry Pate had a driver like that when he first came on the tour but um, they were pretty, and uh, I would I would uh, polish them with pledge before I played a high school match. I mean, you know, we treated them, you know, like that. They were our things, and uh, yeah, nobody's putting uh, furniture polish on a on a modern driver. Absolutely not.
0: And does the modern golfer miss out on something because of that? Do you think, Bill? Is that an element of the game that people being introduced to it, young people being introduced to it in the last ten years, haven't had the chance to decide whether they like or not because it just isn't there anymore?
3: No, it's. Uh, I guess it's trade-offs because, um, if you're, if you're a little kid now getting into the game, um, you know, you can, you can go out and and buy a a US kids or whatever the brand might be, you know, a club that is light enough and short enough for you to swing properly. And that was, that was hard for us to do when we were kids in the sixties because those clubs weren't made. Um, so I think there's trade-offs. They miss a little of the romance. Uh, there's some things that are probably better, but, um, I think, you know, the game took some giant steps in the equipment arena 10 or 15 years ago, and, you know, um, uh, that giant step uh, hasn't necessarily all been for the good.
0: No, no, well, as you say, different. I suppose we we do sound like a bunch of old blokes sitting around whinging about the old days in a lot of ways, don't we? Where do you see sort of things going then, Bill? I mean, we can't obviously keep going further and further. Land has now become... A barrier to building longer golf course it is the most expensive possible thing what do you see happening do you see anything happening with the distance the ball goes
3: well i mean that's the you know it, will there ever be a, a ball rollback um i i don't i think they they probably at this point would be happy if it just doesn't uh get any greater the distance um you know, there's a there's a cadre, as, as Mike knows, he probably does it, there's a cadre of people that, that really enjoy playing hickory golf now. It's, it's certainly, that's never going to take over. That's a small subset of the people who play golf in the world. But those are people that are connecting with the way the game used to be. And uh, I think if, you know, if golf is somehow able to translate, you know, the Pinehurst model, maybe not as well manicured, of course you can't translate that exactly to different types of soils in the northeastern United States or what have you. But uh, if there's a model that maybe less maintenance is good, uh, that things can be a little scruffy, I just think, I mean, I was thinking about this recently upon reflecting on on Pinehurst and writing something about it after both of the opens were completed, is that part of it just comes down to the the darn mowers in the grass that we have now or that people have at their disposal. They're just too good almost. Because yeah. you know uh, greens, they, they couldn't roll it thirteen years ago because the grass wouldn't survive. They rolled it six or seven, and golf was still a very good thing. Mm. And I, I think we've almost gotten uh, technology in, in all ways is too good, and and uh, things things were almost better when they were a little scruffy or a little slower, um, because you know people weren't you know running away from the game in those years, saying, "Oh my gosh, the grass is t- the greens are too slow." There's a you know the grass is too thin. I mean, it's almost like we've gotten too good for our own. Own well-being.
0: Mm. I sort of would would uh, would tend to agree. Sorry, Shaq. I think you were about to say something, and I was about to talk over the top of you. No,
1: no, no, no. Okay. I completely agree, though, with Bill that it, uh, and, and how do you? It's hard to knock the people who do the maintenance because they do a fabulous are so job, good they? at what yeah. they do, and, and a lot of their yeah. there a lot of their innovation has been and will continue to be very positive in terms of trying to uh, cut back on. Waste and and uh, overwatering, and they're getting. We've seen great strides the last few years, where a lot of people are working to kind of bring back some of the ideals we're talking about, but also provide an, a more consistent playing surface. So it may not look as lush, but it plays just as beautifully. And um, so they're doing great work, but there's no question that they're almost uh, you know too good at what they do. And and that was one of the things that came up at Piners that was. Pretty interesting. The uh, talking about the surrounds. Curtis Strange talked about uh, prior to the tournament how they used to be just a little bit higher and those balls would not quite roll off all the time, and and they did a pretty nice job, all in all, managing it. But it was interesting also to see the takeaway most people had from the course uh, was yeah, the greens are a little too much in spots and so the the, the ma- as great as the maintenance was the increased speeds that bills talking about with greens and increased tightness of the turf also kind of exposed uh, maybe some excess in those uh, in those green designs. You, you're treading very carefully around that, shit,
0: but I think I agree. No, I, not
1: really. I, I didn't watch it. I thought think, saying they need to. I mean, I felt I mean, it before the tournament. Right, and I felt yeah. the tournament validated it even more. They're yeah, just, yeah. and it's not even. It's not even that they're so severe. Some of them are really interesting. It's just that it's just so relentless. Mm. Uh, in fact, I emailed Jeff Ogilvy and just wanted to get his take, and and that was his view. He thought everything was spectacular, but he thought. Yeah, you know, there's just a few greens out there that it's just one after the other and you know what Clates and Jeff do in their design and every architect and certainly Donald Ross was uh one of those people. Variety is your uh number one thought when you're out there looking at your holes as a uh, an 18-hole symphony. You you don't want them to all be the same and I just would I've got to think that Donald Ross would be a little bit surprised at sort of the the sameness now throughout the course of those greens. And, you know, Jack Nichols has touched them. And uh, I think maybe Bill Reese Jones has had a, a hand, but mostly it's Jack has I, redo. Yeah. I mean, do you feel that but way, I think, Bill? Do you feel like the greens are. Well, just, I think
3: uh, Bill Cor Bill made an allusion to that subject in his uh, pre tournament uh, press conference, Jeff. He said, you know, some people were asking him about that. And, and he said, well, you know, it's the greens have sort of become the turtleback greens have become the the pioneers number 2 uh you know almost cliche or almost you know that's their their trademark i mean and uh you know the resort is is treading off them a little bit i think and perhaps a little too much because okay we want to you want to get donald ross you want to get the ball you know rolling off every green i mean i personally i mean i don't I don't want to go to a course and just get punished uh, on every hole. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. I fear that 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 would happen to me now if I play number two. It didn't really happen to me when I played it there, you know, thirty five years ago because the greens weren't um, as uh, as 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 fast. Okay. And I think that's what Curtis Strange was talking to. And, and the greens, the, every ball did not run forty feet or or more uh, off the green. It, it would sometimes hang up where you'd actually have a. A chip off an uphill lie instead of uh, from a from a hollow going back up to a, a very perched green. But, um, you know, gosh, I mean, there's so many opinions on this. Uh, I mean, I have mine, and I, I wish they, they would be a little less severe given, or just simply uh, just let the grass grow a little bit. Yeah.
0: yeah. Just before you ask your book question, Shaq, Bill, um, I got the sense, you mentioned there, sort of Core and Crenshaw, they did a lot of interviews prior to the tournament, obviously. I almost got the sense, particularly from Bill Core, that they were reluctant to touch the greens because they figured they were already going to get enough kickback about the different look of the golf course mm. that if they messed with the greens as well, it would have almost been too much and people wouldn't have accepted any more change. That was kind of the feeling. Do you think there was some of that perhaps about it? Because it's such a radically different look to what the golf course was yeah. previously.
3: Um, I, think you're, I think you're right, Rod. I think that, uh, that uh, hesitation along those lines that you mentioned and also what Cor said about hey, these things have sort of become mm. the, in the in the last 20 thirty years the the number two marketing ploy really mm. um, they, they they sell that these greens are, are tough and this is the championship course and you know you're going to experience uh, whatever when you play it and I think all those things figured into their decision to to
1: not modify the greens really but who
0: knows what might happen in the future shaq go
1: ahead. Well, one of the things uh, I love about Bill's book uh, is that it is an anthology, and I think that word scares people off. But uh, and we are—I I have no segue, by the way—from Pinehurst to, back to your book. But um, <laughs> well, he's and, from uh, Pinehurst. That's all you need. Yeah, there you go. And uh, but w- w- I think, and I would—I I know Clay will probably nominate a few. But but what I, one thing that Bill did in this book that I love is that he. He's, he writes a little follow-up item, which when you read the great anthologies, one of my favorites is by Charles Price, and there are a couple by Darwin and uh, uh, and Herbert Warren Wynn. Uh, they don't do that. They don't go back and um, add that little follow-up thought. But I- I'm curious, Bill, uh, where you got the idea to do that, and then also just some of the anthologies of that you, uh, off the top of your head, are some of your favorites, because I think they're really some of the best golf books for getting somebody interested in the history or, or lore of the game because because you can pick them up and read one at a time and um, uh, and and there's a variety of topics and so I mean that's Bill's to me fits in that great uh, list of, of books that you want to give somebody that's a uh, just a nice mix of, of reads so anyway I know I threw a lot at you there Bill but
3: <laughs> no well it's, it's very kind, to, kind appraisal to put me in that company but um yeah, I think my uh, an an editor at University of Nebraska Press uh, sort of uh, uh, may have thrown out the postscript idea first, and, and mm. I, I thought it was a good idea uh, because, um, you know, it does kind of, I think, is, is a bit of interest to, uh, to to the reader who might, you know, read the story about, you know, uh, in the case of Vard- the Varden profile that I have in the book, well, I, you know, I point out that, hey, this is the centennial of his last open victory, and uh, just sort of, again, say, hey, you know, hopefully people – new people this year will will use the anniversary to try to learn a little something about varden and realize how great a figure he was in the game um i think uh you know i was a i was a big frank Deford uh fan in, in my earlier years when i was trying to learn how to to do this and you know uh, uh the world's tallest midget was his uh, anthology <laughs> of his uh some of his great uh sports right sports illustrate articles and i I've, i read and reread that uh Many times, uh, as you say, a golfer at large by Charles Price. Uh, yeah, that's my favorite. Many, many times, uh, her, you know, following through in the mid-'80s from, from Herb mm. Wins. Uh, you know, I've, I, I've, I bought uh, a few years ago at the, at the Open uh, uh, one of, uh, uh, gosh, I'm blanking out, the the great British writer. Longhurst? Dober owner? Not Dober's. Uh, Oh boy, I'm totally blanking.
0: Uh, so can, don't That's, panic, I can, I can edit. Clates, help him out.
3: Okay. <laughs> uh,
2: Pat Ward Thomas. Pat Ward Thomas.
3: There it yeah. is. I was uh, thinking yeah. Prisoner of War, uh, and I, I blanked. Ah, yes,
2: that'll do it.
3: <laughs> Pat Ward Thomas. Yes. Um, so yeah, they are. I mean, somebody, somebody told me uh, recently about my book that it was a good nightstand read, and I took that as a compliment because, I oh think, yeah. yeah, as Jeff said, you know, it's, it is. You just pick. You can read a story or read two stories mm-hmm. or. Or, or uh, you don't have to read the whole thing at one sitting. And, uh, I know, I, you know, you I, know, people have been very nice, and I think it, you know, it is, it is uh, rewarding to have the book out and, and say, hey, okay, I've done this for a long time. Here's here's a little bit of, of what I've done, and and it, it's nice that people seem to have received it well.
0: Well, people have been nice about it because it's good, Bill. It strikes me that you do what. Um, great novelists or writers do or or not so much novelists, people who write I I go back to the Jack Fleck book that we spoke to, um, Neil Sagabell about, Clates, you and I. The story is not about the golf, really it's about the people, isn't it? And that's what good stories are always about, isn't it, Bill? You can...
3: Um, Yeah, I I, I think so, Rod. Mm. I think um, the people are golfers um, and I think, you know, like DeFord would say when he wrote about you know people that played games or or, uh, or about the games, you know, uh, he t- you take it seriously because, you know, um, they're, they're sportsmen or sportswomen, but they're playing a game. But yet, you want to write about them just as seriously as if they were an artist or a or a political figure or a um, you know a scientist. So you just try to do the best you can to to paint the picture of who they who they were mm-hmm. or who they are, and um, that's what I tried to do. And and uh, f- fortunately, in a lot of instances, I was given a pretty good amount of time to try to to work on a piece. And, uh, that's the only way you can really pull something off is if you have the time, as Jeff knows this very well from his writings that, you know, you can't just, you know, uh, have a weekend, uh, uh and, and write a complete story about somebody. You gotta have, you gotta have more time than that.
0: And then, well, one of the issues that we confront, isn't it less and less of that being devoted to allow people to flesh some of these sort of, sort of things out. Um, I've now gone completely blank, Bill. You've well, passed it on. One to me. thing
1: also, Bill, <laughs> that I thought of too is it, what I like is Bill. You didn't go. You didn't edit these. Um, Dan Jenkins likes to edit his for some reason, and I I uh, I, I don't like that, especially when it's Dan because he's already pretty succinct and and uh, he gets to the point. So I don't know why he likes to shorten them. In his majors book, he did. But uh, when you went back and re- reread these, did you? Uh, I mean did you it's it's very hard to go back and read your own writing? every writer says that, and i I assume you feel the same way it, it's uh you, there are things you want to change right
3: um yeah there there were a few things you know I saw a few phrases that popped up a few times in stories that, <laughs> you know i wish I wish I hadn't re- reused that phrase or you know it's just a <laughs> word here and there yeah you know but we 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 uh we do that and uh you know we're we're humans and um the uh, the only thing I the only thing I did uh I I shortened, I shortened only by a couple of paragraphs uh, uh my essay about putting at the Masters to, to sort of take a little Burt Yancey stuff out because I already had the full story on Burt at mm. the end of the book. That's yeah. really the only the only substantive uh, shortening, only real shortening I did. I didn't shorten anything else. Mm. Mm. That was that was pretty much it. So no, I they're there there are they are as they ran. Of course, uh the book style spells out uh some numerals and spells out some country club names and stuff that that our style wouldn't. But other than that, yeah. it's, uh, it, it says everything
0: ran, yeah. Wouldn't even notice. Clates, I knew I had a question for you, and I was thinking about it whilst Bill was talking. It seems to me that there's a couple of sports that throw up particularly good writing. I think golf is one, cricket is one. Funnily enough, I've always thought boxing is one, even though I have no interest in boxing. There's some wonderful boxing writing about. But golf to me is unique, Clates, because, of course, the um, people who read I think also play the game and participate in the sport far more than you get the golf between the professional and the amateur is far less than what you get in other sports. Do you know what I mean about that? you, you play golf with a lot of amateurs. Is is there something to that, that the, the writing is more interesting to read because the people who are reading can really relate to, uh, the sort of things that are happening to the players in the,
2: in the arena. Perhaps it's just a more interesting game to write about. The smaller the ball, the better the writing, don't they say? And, um, yeah, I'm not sure. I, uh, I mean, one of the great sports books was a handful of summers, a tennis book by South African guy called Gordon Forbes. That was a great sports book. It was great fun to read. But I mean, I mean golf's always lent itself to great writing because there's so much more to the. Well, the course is such a different element to it, and the competition and the you know the different you know, there've been such a so many ways into the game that make the people who've played it so interesting. I mean, Baden came from a you know a tiny island in the English Channel and. Ross from a you know, little village way up on the top of Scotland, and you know, Nicholas from the middle of America, and Di Vicenzo from Argentina, and Thompson from a, Australia, a long way away, and Von Nyder. So it's always you know, it's been such a worldwide game with such a diversity of people who've played it, who've always been interesting people. Yeah, so, so, so there's so many elements that lead itself to make it interesting to write about. I mean, Bert Yancey was a fascinating mm. guy, Bill. You know, I've uh, sure. read the book, but but what, what, what a you know, difficult, and interesting life he had. And what a beautiful player! I mean, wow, he was a. I didn't see him play, and he played here in the Open in 1967 at Comolf, and you know, I, I've seen films of his swing. What a beautiful looking player he was.
3: He was, and you know, a very uh, you know a tragic story in a way. I mean, he battled the mental illness much of his life, and he. You know, died of a heart attack when he was 56 uh, on a on a drive on a practice range at a senior tour event. So, wow. um, it, you know, I, I think that you know, there's there's I, what I hear is a great a Savvy movies out there which is terrific. Yeah. But I always I always thought that um, when I wrote the Yancey story, I did I did send it to a, a couple of agents, thinking that hey, it would be uh, it would be a very interesting uh, golf movie if if you know to portray someone who had a mental illness like that and was trying to pursue the golf life. I mean to me it would make a cool
0: movie but just for uh, those who don't know he was sort of severely manic wasn't he answer he would have highs yeah. and lows of extreme mm-hmm. just extremes. he'd be unbelievably happy and unbelievably depressed it was uh
3: yeah he was a uh, he was uh, a manic depressive uh and uh he battled that and of course the you know the medicine he, he first had his problem at when he was at west point he was a very smart man and was at the, the military academy at west point and he had his first uh what they called breakdown at the time and had electric shock treatments and you know it was from from there on you know just uh you know off and on and i think one thing that one of his children told me uh, was that you know he would he would go off his medicine because he thought he played better when he wasn't taking it Mm. and of course that would lead to a cycle of of uh of of bad things and um you know it was it was tough and um uh he 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 really loved the game and he was uh, had a fantastic analytical mind and um you know, certainly one of the more interesting figures to, to play the, the the PGA Tour over the years.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, if anybody has – well, get Bill's book because Bert Yancey is a fascinating guy. I haven't read the Bert Yancey piece, but I'm sure it's as good as the others. And uh, he really is a, a fascinating story. Shackelford, I think you've got uh, something you want
1: well, to Well, we Bill can't about. do a show without talking about uh, Tiger's return. And, and Bill ends his book with um, with um, uh, an epilogue that's written for the book, on, and it's uh, on the Tiger era. But uh, – I'm curious, Bill, what you thought. Uh, I don't know how much you saw of Tiger's golf, and and then I I thought his comments after the rounds last week were more, uh, after the congressional miscut, were more uh, enlightening than the golf itself. I don't know what you thought, but I'm curious.
3: Yeah, I think, uh, at least uh, from from what he's saying publicly, uh, it is a bit of a different Tiger now. It's maybe not the... uh, golf is number one all the time uh tiger that we saw for so long and uh you know he's 38 years old he's he's gone through these personal turmoils and, and physical injuries serious physical injuries and uh I, one thing that struck me just with his physical appearance he he uh, his upper body look looked really
0: unbelievable
3: oh shoot
1: I, I, I
0: unbelievable
3: i don't i don't really know why he does that but it's um, just
1: unbelievable I uh, just thought for and, sure uh, this was be he'd finally he would shift uh and and here he comes back more pumped up than ever
3: yeah. but i you know i uh, again i sort of the timing of the book and having to get the thing in uh well in advance uh you know obviously i'm not i wasn't able to address the injury that he had this spring uh, uh in the surgery and everything but but I sort of you know, I sort of hold out at the end of my piece, sort of talking about, well, just imagine if he were to ever get to number eighteen, if he were to ever tie Jack, oh, how long would he try to beat him? <laughs> I mean, that really, to me, uh, huh. it still huh. remains huh. a fascinating huh. question. How long yeah. would he would he try to do it?
0: We we thought we saw Tiger Mania in '97, Bill. Can you imagine <laughs> if he holds a putt to get to eighteen? <laughs> what would have It would almost be too much for one human being. It's now been built up for so long; it it actually would be. An, an unbelievable burden, would it not, for him to carry yeah. Yeah. from there on?
3: It would. And I almost think that, you know, the burden even to get getting there, the fact that he's had this thing dangling, you know, out there in front of him for so many years now... Um, of course, you know Nicholas never never had that type thing. Uh, none of the other great players really had that type thing hanging at the end to shoot for, like a horse running uh, uh, for the finish line. Uh, it was was not like that, and it just may be that it 's just too much pressure because I think in the last four years uh, since his return from the, the scandal and the headlines and the layoff. That um, you know, I followed him every every hole, every shot at Pebble Beach in 2010 at the U.S. Open, and uh, you know he should have won that. He should have won that championship, and I think uh, he just came out Sunday very, very flat. Uh, you know, he just something just wasn't there mentally for him, and uh, I think in one way or another, that type of situation has occurred when he's been in the majors with a chance to win uh, ever since. And you know, is that ever going to change? Maybe, maybe if he wins one, it will. But who knows?
0: Clites. Clyde, yeah sorry check
1: right, oh Claes, did you catch the comment about uh the the proxing on the Bermuda at home and how it was like he was shocked that he arrived at congressional and they had bent and cool season grasses I mean
2: it was just really weird no I, I, I didn't thought, see that but I mean surely yeah. you would know that
1: uh, it was yeah it sure. was just it was just strange it was it was I, because his short game that's what's just so stunning is he it's just awful yeah <laughs>
2: yeah. Oh yeah! I mean, the amazing thing about golf is that when Palmer walked off that green in 1964 at Augusta, and when Watson walked off the green at Birkdale in 1983, that they were 33 or 34 years old, and you know, at the top of the game and playing great golf, and still relatively young men, and Seve too, really at, at Litham, and they never won again. I mean, at 34 yeah. years old, they, their careers were done. And I mean, it was amazing that. And, and you know, the question is Tiger. Going to be the same. He's probably going to win that last open at Torrey Pines, and that's it, at 33 or 4. It's amazing that right at the peak of someone's powers, and they never do again what seems so routine and so easy. And then you have Julius Boros winning at 48, and Watson nearly winning at 60 or 58, or whatever, Turnbury. So it's an amazing game like that. It will just take it away and never give it back, really.
0: What's your take, Bill? Well, what's your sense? Are you you on the, the Tiger-will-get-it-done train or the we don't think he's going to get there now? I mean, everyone's got an opinion, haven't they?
3: Um, will he get to Jack's record, you mean? Yeah. Um, I, I thought at one point it was a, it was almost a certainty, and, yeah. and now I think it's, a, it's not very probable. It's possible. It's not probable.
0: It almost um, makes it a more lip-licking story. And in some ways, does that not play to Tiger's strength? As soon as people start to tell him he can't do it, will that not be the point where he really... Perhaps makes hmm. the turn and and really starts to chase it again the way he did. I, don't know. Um,
3: I, I At one point, I would have thought so, but I don't know. Uh, of late, uh, I'm not really leaning that mm-hmm. way. He's been beat um,
0: up by life, hasn't he? I mean, in fairness, he for his own mistakes a lot of it, but he really has been through the ringer in the last four or five years. It would be hard to imagine. He
3: really has, and I think as, as people wrote, not only me, but you know what he went through with the, with the scandal. It was different from from a, a player. It was different from Ben Hogan even being near death and coming back from that. Mm. It was a different mm. thing because it was a psychological thing right. um he was he was really embarrassed and really uh, as you say put through the ringer and uh like no athlete really has been and uh to come back he's certainly come back from that he's won many tournaments, but he's not won a major championship since and yeah. um i I think you know we've all said this was a big year because it was it was at courses the majors were at courses where he's done well. Well, now, you know, this year's half over. He's going to be back at the Open, but, you know, he's certainly not going to be in Easy. Yeah, that's full right. flight, I don't think. Uh, so then and then now next year is crucial. Well, at a certain point, you know, next year turns into next year, and, um, you know, he's got to win one. He's got to get one in the in the bag. And uh, in that. the longer it goes, the harder, you know, he may well turn into a, a savvy situation or a Watson situation or a, a Palmer situation. Um, you know he's got to he's got to get one, and then he can start trying to win others.
0: Yeah, but you might be right. Clay, you might be right. It might be just like those where, in all of those examples you cited, nobody would have said at that moment, mm-hmm. "That's it."
2: <laughs> nobody well, it would have unimaginable. said that's, it. that's you know, right. That Watson would win another major yeah, after he exactly. ripped that 2 on under the 18th green the third time. Yeah. It was you know, it was just he was going to break Baden's record. And- yeah.
0: That happened Damn, nearly did, Clates, just a couple of years ago. He sure did. Um, which was uh, and just on that, we must we must make a note, check. It was fabulous to see. Was it not that Tom was had his exemption lengthened by one year so that he could finish his Open career at St Andrews uh, next year, which would be just wonderful. I thought.
1: Yeah, I thought it was a nice touch. Um, yeah, I, I, I peep, some people get upset when they do those kinds of things, but oh, not with Watson surely. The man who uh, Peter Senior, not.
0: Peter Senior once described him as too nice to be an American. Do you remember that, Clates?
1: Yeah, <laughs> especially the way he plays. I mean, he's still such a good player. Yeah, and just uh, such I mean, he can make he
0: the played, cut. He easily. played fantastic in the final
3: round of the Senior PGA yeah. I was there in Michigan a few weeks ago. <laughs> he was, you know, he was, he was, he almost you know overtook Monty, and Monty had a big lead. Uh, it was, uh, you know, he's playing. Uh, he's going to play. He's playing a little. He's not cramming his schedule this summer like he did the last couple. He's not playing uh, next week. I don't think at the U.S. Senior Open. Um, you know, he's 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 playing this week, and then he'll 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 play the uh, the two opens, the regular and the and the senior over in Britain. But um, yeah, phenomenal guy. I think uh, I do have to say I think if Frank Hannigan were still with us, he would not be happy about the special <laughs> But no, no, that was uh, that
1: was not his cup of tea, was it, Jeff? No. 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 no, he found those to be just just vile.
0: Sentiment not high on his list of priorities, I suspect, is a diplomatic way to say. It. I recall <laughs> Watson making the cut here at the Lakes a couple of years ago, Coach. Remember when he came in? He shot seventy-seven in the first round. Went out and shot, I think, sixty-seven in the Howling Gale in the second round to make the cut. It was just an extraordinary effort at
2: sixty-one or sixty-two. Well, he, he broke. He shot sixty-nine the last day where it blew a hurricane in the afternoon. He mm. got out in the morning early, and mm. but it was the best round of the day. But well, I played a practice round with him at Huntingdale one year, and he. He was talking about his swing, and he said, Byron Nelson always told me I'd be a better player after fifty, and he was right." Wow! So, you know, he, so he was alluding to the fact that I guess Nelson thought his swing would tighten up and get get shorter, and you know, it kind of turned out that way. Cause it never got short. It, it's still long, but yeah.
0: it's only the putter that's ever sort of faltered, isn't well, it? With, yeah. With yeah. But I, I
3: remember, I remember talking to Bob Rotella not too long ago about Watson and. He said, you know, he's really singular in that he had the really bad putting problems, you know, in his late 30s, mid to late 30s, and into his early 40s. And, you know, he just he just kept fighting through it. He never went to cross-handed or let, or the claw or long putter. He just kept fighting it. And he, and he eventually, mm. at least at some times, still finds a way to putt well enough to mm. almost win the Open and, and to win senior tournaments. I mean, incredible uh, tenacity with, with Watson."
0: Yes, and he, a, a driven man, but uh, an extraordinarily genial and charismatic one, all at the same time, which is a rare combination, I suspect, Bill. And one of the reasons he's such a popular figure, no matter where he goes in the world. I saw kids at the lakes watching Tom Watson on the range and just being mm. amazed by.
2: Mind you, he did play with an Australian kid there who assumed he was English because he'd won the British Open five times. Oh, he clates. Didn't, he didn't know he was. He didn't know he was American. The Australia's boo weekly. Well, he need to slap around the yeah. head.
0: <laughs> didn't he play? He played with the kitty, didn't he? Guan Guan the
2: first two No, players. it wasn't him. He he played with um with Jake Higginbotham.
0: Oh, Jake! Oh, that I do remember.
2: Right, that, I'm,
3: actually, Rod, I'm, right, I'm old enough to have carried a scoring standard in Watson's group in the World Open and Pinehurst. Oh wow. Oh, wow. oh wow!
0: Wow, that must have been an experience that would have turned you on to golf. I would imagine if you weren't already there.
3: Oh, it was it was a, it was a great draw to get him because it was it was probably the um, it was probably the year. It was probably seventy five when uh, the year he won the his first open. It would have been later that uh, summer fall, but um, and he was already with Bruce on the bag, Bruce, Bruce Edwards. And I do remember after the round though, Bruce was giving away some balls and golf balls, and uh, he did. I didn't get one, and I was disappointed. I thought. <laughs> and,
0: and you've hated Tom Watson ridiculous. ever since. <laughs>
3: No, 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 no. But uh, I do remember that though, and you know, you think back on that, and you think, you know, Bruce has been gone now for a long time, yeah. and uh, wow. you know, it's. uh well, they were had great. an amazing, amazing ride in the game.
0: He has. They were they were a great story. The two of them was they seventy five. Was that the year that he bounced it off the one strand of wire in the playoff against Jack that Newton was on the eighth Saints hole? yeah. On the eighth hole, and, and yeah. Newton's two iron to the last came up. What a foot short! And yeah, lucky bastard. Yeah, cost him- <laughs> Lost him. Oh, that's right. Yeah, indeed.
2: Now, I do
1: have my doubts about him as a Ryder Cup captain, not because of his competence, but I do wonder, Bill, how his style was is gonna fly with today's players. The whole kind of gut check and get in your face and and um, you know, USA and I, 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 I could see that working with Keegan Bradley. I I don't see it working with some of the other players just because the days are so long now and I'm curious what you think of that. I I, I I just I don't know. I don't I don't feel good about how that's gonna end at Glen well, Eagles.
3: Yeah. Um you know, it, it probably but I will say this, Watson seems to have he's made an effort to get out on the tour and to make some yeah. visits out there to try to you know, to at least to get to know some of these guys uh, to some degree. Yeah, Patrick Reed. <laughs> oh, darn. <Darned. laughs> um, I But I would hope that, hey, the the players would look at, at Watson and say, hey, I, whatever he's like, whatever his technique, uh, you know, I want to play hard for this guy because mm. he's a legend in the game and yeah. I, I want to do my best. So maybe that psychology in itself will, will uh, pay off for the Americans. They certainly need to to change their mojo uh, in the Ryder yeah. Cup, for sure.
0: About yeah. the only way that Tom could become more popular in Scotland, I think Bill will be to lose a Ryder Cup there, won't it? That'll, <laughs> that'll, <laughs> With grace. They will anoint him as uh, well and truly he'll be accepted, no uh, no question. Well, that.
3: I just think everybody's just hoping it doesn't snow, right, at Glen Eagles?
0: For, yeah. Uh, what are we, Yeah, we're back in. This all started in 2010, didn't it, Shaq? With the scheduling and whatnot. So now the Ryder Cup gets played in howling winds and rain. Now in the the UK, when it goes over there, those years, I remember the complaints. The FedEx Cup wasn't it that ruined it all, if I recall. All,
3: all I know is that that everybody, you know, well in advance of the the the, the Ryder Cup at, at Wales, they said oh, the weather could be really bad, and the weather was really bad. Oh, That's horrific. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. I'm taking any forecasts about Glen Eagles very seriously.
0: Will you be going, Billy? You still, uh, you still lucky enough to travel around a lot overseas? I moment? am.
3: I am on the. I am on the the team scheduled to go. Yeah, fabulous. So, oh, that'll be, that'll um, be a terrific. Bring my bring my rain suit, right?
0: We love the Ryder Cup in Australia. Uh, Bill, sadly, we, I think generally speaking, we cheer against the Americans and for the Europeans. But we do love, I think it's the greatest speaker. You're a Ryder Cup fan, aren't you, Clates, if I, if I recall? Oh, yeah, yeah, I love the Ryder Cup.
2: That's, that's the best golf of the year. I was One getting, of, of the, that's right. The, every second year.
0: It, without doubt, the best golf and always the most compelling and fantastic. We look forward to that. Bill, we've kept you longer than we meant to. A couple of technical issues have sort of laboured things on a little bit, but it's been fabulous of you to take some time. I think we'll – We'll wind it up there, but it has been terrific. Uh, Really enjoyed it and must recommend people go out and uh, and buy the book. It is a fantastic read. Thanks for chatting to us today.
2: Uh,
3: Rod, thank you so much for having me on. And uh, Jeff and Mike, a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, same here. Thanks, Bill.
0: Yes, and to Shaq and to Clates, thank you too, as always. been fabulous to have the two of you aboard again. Thank you. Yep, thanks, Rod. And that wraps it up for State of the Game, episode 41. Episode 41, Jack. It's unbelievable. It just keeps racking up. Before you know it, we'll get to 50, and who knows, maybe even 100. But that's it for episode 41. Hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back again in the next couple of weeks to do it all again here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, Log on to www.talkandgolf.com